we're getting ready to have a live session. It's Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast featuring the lives and the stories of the people who play and write about and love jazz. It's more than a podcast. If you visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, you'll find these interviews, plus live jazz news, links to lots of other great jazz sites, and a whole lot more. On this episode, and I find this somewhat hard to believe, we make it seven in a row. Seven shows seven guests, and seven different countries of origin. My guest this week is saxophonist Wayne Escoffery, who was born in London to Jamaican parents. He has a new album on Savant Records called Veneration, featuring Joe Locke on vibes, Hans Glavishnig on bass, and Louis Nash on drums. Here's one of two Booker Little tunes from his new album. This one's called B-Vamp. My guest is Wayne Escoffery. He's got a new CD on Savant Records called Veneration, and it features a quartet with Wayne on saxophones, Joe Locke on vibes, the uh, quickly becoming ubiquitous Hans Glavishnig on bass, and Louis Nash on the drums. Uh, Wayne, I want to start off, first of all, by thanking you for taking the time to do this. Thank you. My pleasure for being here. Let's, uh, as, a, as a way to get kind of back into the past a little bit, let's start with this new record and uh, talk about the, the very last track on it, which is an amazing uh, performance of a Jackie McLean tune. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the tune and why you chose it, and then use that to tell us a little bit about Jackie McLean and the impact he had on your life. Uh, well, I've, I've always uh, actually wanted to record that tune from the first time I heard it on uh, I think the album's Let Freedom Ring. 
think the melody is very unique and uh, and it can go in a lot of different places. In a lot of ways, it's kind of just reminiscent of Jackie McLean and his and his whole concept in a whole. I mean, he's about uh, being soulful and swinging and and grooving and also stretching and going outside and and, and searching. And that piece, uh, it really has all of those elements. I mean, it's a it's you know a very soulful melody and in the in the improvisations, he just the band opens up and everyone just goes wherever they want to go or wherever they feel like taking it. And uh, in, the, in the recording that we did, we, you know, we tried to keep within that and um, just kind of once the solos start, we're just kind of exploring and seeing where, where the music can take us. And it also has those really amazing rubato sections kind of after the the solos. Right. Are those in his recording on Let Freedom Ring? or does Yeah, this... the, the arrangement is, is actually his exact arrangement. Um, uh, the only thing that makes it sound extremely unique is just the way we have vibes there I mean one of the writers that wrote about the record even even commented that it sounds like it was written for vibes the way it is and, it, and it's really just a beautiful melody and, and that and those passages that you were just talking about are just they're really incredible they're beautiful and they're beautiful here to hear on vibes and with the vibes and the saxophone so that was really uh, uh, you know I did I did have a little foresight uh, as far as that was concerned and I, and I knew that would have a really great sound I'm talking to you from Rochester, New York, which is the hometown of your vibraphone player on this record, Joe Locke, who uh, really just all throughout this record, I think it, it shows what an amazing skill he has for, for color and texture and also just for really being a, an incredibly propulsive player where that's, where that's called on. Have you guys played together a lot in the past? Well, you know, we actually haven't played together that much. The very first time I met Joe Locke was while I was at the Thelonious Monk Institute in Boston, and uh, the drummer that was in that group, Sebastian DeCrom, now he's actually with, um, I'm trying to remember his name. With Jamie Cullum, right? Right, now he's with Jamie Cullum, yeah. But at the time, he was he was our, our drummer, and he and for his senior recital, he got Joe Locke to come up, and the, the senior recital was incredible. It was Ron Carter on bass, Joe Locke, you know, Sebastian, myself, you know, it was crazy. But uh, now was the first time I ever met Joe. I was like, oh my God, this dude's incredible. Then when I finally moved to New York City in 2000, I used to go and hear Joe Locke's group, uh, I believe it was called the Wirewalkers, down at the old Cavejas in, in uh, Soho. It was more of like a, f- you know, kind of like a fusion, uh, a fusion kind of more funk, jazz type of group. I sat in with them a bunch of times, and we really, you know, we got along well, and it was a lot of fun, and we always kind of threatened each other that, you know, we'd definitely uh, do something together at some point. So uh, when the idea came to put this band together and, and record, he's definitely one of the first people I thought of, and it was a good opportunity to uh, to uh, work together. 
Now, I asked you about Jackie Mack, and then I, I didn't keep going after it to take us back into the past, but let's do that just a little bit. I know you were born in London, and you're of West Indian heritage, is that right? Yeah, I'm, uh, my, most of my family's Jamaican, but, uh, you know, the, uh, Jamaica was a colony of England, so there's a, a lot of Jamaicans that, that live in England. I know when you were a kid, uh, at a young age, you moved to Connecticut, right? Right. My mother and I left England when I was about eight years old. And I actually traveled a few places before I went to Connecticut. We lived in Canada for about a year, in Montreal, Canada, for about a year. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia, Florida. Finally, we settled in, in uh, New Haven. And that's where I really uh, began my, my studies in, uh, in music. I didn't really move to, move to Hartford until college, until I went to the Hart School. You started your studies in music actually as a singer, right, in the in the Trinity Boys Choir? Yeah, exactly. Not many people know that. But yeah, um, I actually joined, um, when I was in elementary school, I joined a pretty, at the time, renowned uh, boys choir, the Trinity Boys Choir, and we uh, we did some touring internationally, and uh, I got exposed to a lot of great uh, classical choral music, so uh, that, was a, that was a great beginning just for me to get my ear together and, uh, you know, uh, just get an understanding of uh, the basics of music. How did you even decide to do that? Did you sing around the house a lot as a kid, or and your mom heard you and thought, "Oh, you should try that for this"? Yeah, well, actually, since I was, you know, I was been singing since I was five years old. I mean, I was, I always thought I was going to be a singer. I thought I was going to be like, you know, the next, uh, you know, new edition or something. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I was just <laughs> singing all the time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I went to elementary school, and uh, they had a music program, and and uh, they had this the choir director. Actually, what he would do was he would travel to just different elementary schools and just audition kids. They didn't even know what they were auditioning for. He would just take kid, a kid into a room with a piano. He would just play some stuff and tell the kid to sing, and then he would say, you know, sing, uh, you know, sing this note, sing this note, just to make sure they weren't tone deaf. And if he thought they had a good voice. Um, he would he would then hit him with you know well I got this you know choir and you think you'd be great and and that's what happened to me I ended up joining joining the choir ironically in that same um, elementary school which actually was called Spring Glen Elementary School in Hamden Connecticut um, in that same elementary school I got introduced to the saxophone um, they had uh, they had a guy coming around uh, I guess he was you know doing master classes in different different elementary schools and he came he could play every instrument so he came. And did a, did a uh, you know did a you know performance and basically played every instrument played the saxophone played the trumpet played you know violin he even played the straw I remember he you know took a straw and was blowing through it and showing how you could make music from it and uh, it was really great that that a school uh, would have that happen and uh, that's how I got into the saxophone I actually wanted to play trumpet I went home and I told my mom um, you know I think I want to play the trumpet. And uh, I don't know if you know, but I've, I always tell people I'm not from a musical family really at all. I mean, my my dad did play guitar, but I didn't really grow up with him. And my mother had uh, has basically no musical uh, talent <laughs> at all. Um, but uh, so anyway, I went home. I said I want to play trumpet, and she says, "Well, you know, the trumpet only has you know three notes, so don't play that. Play something else." And <laughs> then <laughs> <laughs> what she meant was it had three buttons. She didn't know that you know had more than three notes, and I was like, "Okay." And I didn't know anything, so I was like, "All right." Well, I guess trumpet does kind of suck. So, so then, uh, so she's like, "Why don't you try saxophone?" And, and apparently, my uh, <clears throat> my grandfather on my father's side played saxophone. Just uh, you know, you know, just just uh, for fun. You know, he was a just a beginning saxophone player. So I said, all right, well, I'll try sax, and that's how that happened. Probably a smarter career move than the straw. Yeah, de- yeah definitely better than the straw, <laughs> definitely better than, than an instrument with only three notes. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> it is amazing how all those trumpet players recorded all those records, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, right. it sounds like a lot more when you hear it. <laughs> it does. 
And when you started to get more serious about the saxophone, you attended some places that could kind of help you advance faster. I think one of those was the Jazzmobile, right? Sure, yeah. At that, at that time, at that time, actually, New Haven had a really great musical environment and a jazz environment. So I was actually attending the Neighborhood Music School in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I was going to the Educational Center for the Arts, which is an arts program, much like maybe LaGuardia or something like that in New York City. The only difference is that for the first half of the day, you go to your normal high school, which for me, I went to a magnet school, which is a kind of experimental high school anyway. And then the second half of it, you would go to the Educational Center for the Arts. In addition to those two things, every Saturday, I would drive to New York City and uh, go to the Jazzmobile. Now tell folks who may not know what the Jazzmobile is. It's, uh, that time was basically like a community program. It was free which was incredible. You would, it was on 125th Street. You would basically, I basically auditioned for all these cats, you know, and, uh, and the audition was really more just for placement because everyone, I think, pretty much got in. You auditioned and you were able to take all kinds of classes with, um, you know, with uh, great musicians of music. You know, you would have an improvisation class, you would have uh, jazz ensembles, um, and it was really a great environment. I met a lot of, uh, a lot of musicians there and, uh, got to study with, you know, maybe even some people that people might not know, but but uh, the, the jazz the Jazzmobile has a long history of people like, you know, Lee Morgan and all these people that were, you know, working there and going there, I and mean, it goes back quite a, quite a while. And when I was there, people like John Stubblefield were there, and uh, this great uh, saxophone player who doesn't play anymore named Bud Revels was there and helped me a lot. George Cables, I, I remember being there. There were a lot of just great artists that were there to just teach young guys how to do this, you know. And about what years are we talking about now when you were in high school? Well, I graduated high school in 92, so I didn't, really, I didn't even know what jazz was until I was a, so, a sophomore in high school. So you're talking about 91 and 92, I was going to the Jazzmobile. When you started going to the Jazzmobile and you know things uh, like the Neighborhood Music School, were you seeing people who were making music a profession and realizing that that was something you might want to do? I did, I did. Um, there were a lot of local uh, artists in New Haven, um, like uh, Chris Herbert and Barry Marshall, a lot of guys who pretty much just stay in, in, in New Haven and, and really stay in that scene and don't really get to New York much. But they were, you know, decent players and, and, and really helped me out a lot in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I would see them doing gigs. There were a couple of clubs there around that time that actually a lot of uh, international artists came came through. Uh, um, I remember there was a club called Malcolm's, which I I was there all the time. And uh, and I would just see all kinds of cats there on the weekends, like Lou Donaldson and and uh, you know all kinds of artists coming in. Um, so they had international acts coming in. They also had a few um, clubs where a lot of great local musicians, like Bobby and Eddie Buster, who were both organists who played with people like Gene Ammons and Sonny Stitt. You know, I was around those people, just soaking up what they did all the time. In addition to hearing some of the younger people, like I mentioned before, you know, Chris Herbert and Barry Marshall playing gigs, so I was able to hear a lot of those of those guys. And so now we come to the Jackie McLean connection, which is when you were a senior in high school, you went to the Artist Collective, right? Right. Actually, how I ended up knowing about Jackie was, uh, as I mentioned, there were a lot of jam sessions and, and stuff like that in New Haven, and one of these jam sessions, actually on our birthdays, I met. Uh, saxophonist Jimmy Green, who's a great saxophone player, and he's a, he's a great friend. We're, we're very close now. And uh, we actually share a birthday. His birthday is, uh, he's a day uh, younger than me. And we met, which is weird, like uh, like midnight <clears throat> on February 23rd, you know, and his birthday's February 24th. So we like met on our birthdays. We always talk about that. But um, anyway, he introduced me uh, to, to Jackie McLean's music and told me all about what he was doing with Jack, with J-Mac, and he's known J-Mac since he was, you know, a kid. And has been working with him, and uh, he was like, "Man, you got to come up and check out the Artist Collective and check out Jackie McLean." I was like, "Oh wow!" 
I went up there, I joined the Artist Collective, and I was in, in, the, in the big band there that was basically run by all of Jackie McLean's band, um, you know, Nat Reeves and, and Alan Palmer and Steve Davis and all these cats, and I met all these guys and got to play all this great music like, uh, you know, Ellington Music and Tad Dameron, Bad Jones and all this great stuff. And uh, then uh, J Mac offered me a full scholarship to go to Hart uh, with you know with Jimmy and a lot of the uh, a lot of the other great guys up there, and uh, that's how I ended up doing that. Was the Artist Collective uh, kind of like the Jazzmobile, an intensive workshop, or what was it? What was sure. it about? Yeah, it was it was like that. Um, they had a lot. It wasn't just jazz. Though. They had a lot of different arts. They had you know African drumming. They had uh, martial arts. Um, it was really just artistic environment dealing with a lot of just african-american culture and uh and just trying to help the inner city kids it was a really great environment to be in and and uh really what what the jazz part of it was was they just had a big band and we used to and we would just hit and play all these all this great music and then when i actually and then they would give teach private lessons and when i once i actually went to uh hart for college i ended up teaching at the artist collective so i ended up teaching private lessons to a lot of the you know the high school kids that were you know in my position when i was in high school and was Jackie McLean the or one of the founders of the Artist Collective? Yeah, he's the founder of the Artist Collective, along with his wife. And uh, you know, he would uh, he would teach lessons there and and uh, and basically train us and and all of his his students to do the same. And he also founded the jazz program at the Hart Conservatory, right? Right, that's right. Yeah. So when you went to Hart, were you studying all the time with uh, Jackie McLean? Yeah, the way the way it worked with J Mac is that. Uh, he didn't necess- he didn't really give private saxophone lessons that often he did to a select few and i was actually fortunate enough to get some of those lessons but excuse me but in general what he did was he, he had something called the the sax sax class and basically it was him in front of a class with with all the saxophone players it was every wednesday morning i believe and it would be you know a class with all the saxophone players let's say you know 20 saxophone players or anywhere between 10 and 20 saxophone players and uh we would he would go through exercises with us he would show us you know little lines and patterns to play in 12 key he would talk to us about like tunes we need to learn we would go over songs with them and it was a very organic type of thing you know he he was really into that and if if you watch there's a video uh, called uh, Jack and McC- J Mac on Mars or Jack and McLean on Mars, and they show actually that saxophone class back in the in the 70s, and it's the same vibe. It's just you know he's standing up there and he's just talking about so many aspects of the music, who to check out, you know what's hip, what's not, you know uh, philosophies about music, and it's just a very organic organic thing and that's what that was about um i'd like i said i did take some private lessons with him and and he you know i was fortunate enough so that that he was he really dug what i was doing he does you know jimmy and i were kind of like a duo up there and he really we were called everyone called us the twin towers and uh and we actually had a group that jmac put together um called twin towers we had a group for a while and uh you know he really he really took both of us under his wing and and uh you know gave us private lessons we go over his house a couple of times with with a bunch of the other cats too and we did get to get to um have some extra time with him and and honestly anyone who really requested it he would he would try to accommodate them but there were so many cats up there that, that he would really just stick to the master class format and uh and it was a great way to to get close to him for everyone and what was the vibe like between the different horn players in the larger class? I mean, I've seen some of those things where it's kind of like a cutting contest, but it doesn't sound like that was the the environment here. 
It wasn't. It, it was, and it wasn't. You know, J Mac. Everyone, everyone always talks about it. You know, it's like baptism by fire. You know, and uh, J Mac did not hold. You know, hold his words. I mean, he would tell you what he thought, and sometimes, I mean, we always joke that he, some of the stuff he would say. I mean, he would. You know, we remember him telling telling one guy. You know, the stuff you're playing. You know, that's. What you're playing is baby talk. You know, we need to, you know, be making sentences here, using real words. I mean, he didn't have a problem with telling people what he felt about what they were doing. And so there was that aspect of it. There was a family aspect of it where, you know, we were all brothers and sisters and, you know, listening to what, you know, in, in a way our father figure was saying. And then, of course, there was that aspect of we wanted to go in there Wednesday morning. You know, sometimes, you know, the master class started at like, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I had a gig in New Haven, actually, at a club called Rudy's on Tuesday nights. And I wouldn't get home until two, sometimes at 2 a.m. because I would have to drive back to Hartford, which is about 45 minutes away, um, you know, where I was, where, back to the dorms where I was staying. And sometimes I would still get up Wednesday morning to do my long tones, you know, an hour before the class just because I wanted to get in there. And I knew that, you know, I was going to be, a, you know, that Jimmy was going to sound great. And I knew that, you know... Julius Tolentino, who was another saxophone player who was there, was going to sound good, and I knew so-and-so was going to sound good. So there was definitely that aspect of it. And really, um, you know, uh, those two people that I mentioned, Jimmy, Julius, and another great saxophone player who just moved to town named Chris Allen, we actually all lived together. So there was a very healthy amount of uh, uh, competition there, and we were all pushing each other, much like, you know, a family, much like brothers and sisters. You know, you have the older ones and the younger ones, and we're all just you know, at different points in, in our development, maybe uh, all of us were maybe a step ahead of the other one in, in different areas, and we all pushed each other, and that was a definitely definitely healthy uh, type of type of competition, uh, competitiveness to uh, be involved in, I think. Sounds like an episode of America's Next Top Saxophonist. <laughs> yeah, right. It was, it was a lot hipper than that. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> so, well, you were at heart... Uh, obviously, you just said that you were gigging, and were you getting a chance to play with other people who were in J Max orbit? Yeah, I did. I did some gigs with Steve Davis every now and again. And one of the great things is actually we had there were different ensembles in the in the college. Um, so, um, and uh, I was in the advanced ensemble along with with Jimmy Green. So uh, for a while, especially when we were freshmen, I think when we were, when we were freshmen and sophomores, it was uh, Jimmy, myself, and then another great alto player named Teddy Brubaker. We were in there, and our rhythm section was actually a J Max band. It was Eric McPherson on drums, it was uh, Alan Palmer on piano, and uh, a great bass player who lives in New York now named Peter Hartman, who you know did some gigs with with, uh, with those guys every now and again. And uh, so right there, we're just like we're playing. We had no excuses. We're playing with the you know one of the best rhythm sections in the business right there, and we were just so we did get you know uh, get a chance to like really play with the people right in J-Mac circle. You know, Nat Reeves was always around. We would, you know, every now and again, he would pull us into a room and, or pull me into a room and say, hey, let's, let's play a couple, a couple of tunes. You know, Randy Johnson, great guitarist, was, was teaching up there. And, and, you know, we would always play with him. So it was definitely really like, like a, a, a family up there. And, and once you were in J-Mac's dynasty, so to speak, you were just there. And everyone, you were all a family. You know, some of you might have been older, of course, you know, I'm going to give more respect to, you know, Steve Davis and Nat Reeves because they were older than me and, you know, helping me out. But it was like a family, and, and they really, you know, it was really a great environment to be in. So once you got out of heart, you continued to make your mom happy by getting yet another scholarship, this time to the Thelonious Monk Institute. Talk a little bit about that. What I initially was hoping to do was to go was to come to New York because, you know, even after high school, all of my friends went straight to New York. I mean, I had some friends that, that played jazz with me in New Haven, and, 
and they all went to uh, the new school or, Man- or Manhattan. And I was really spending a lot of time in New York, as I mentioned, going to the Jazzmobile. So I really wanted to come to New York. But I got a full scholarship to go to Hart, so I went to Hart. So after that, I was like, okay, great, I'm done. I can go to New York now. So I wanted to go to New York then. Then this thing about the Phoniest Monk Institute comes up, and then J-Mac tells me, he's like, Wayne, I really want you to audition for this. I think it would be good for you. Even though I didn't really want to do it, I was like, all right. I was like, I'm just, you know, I'll audition, and if I get in, then I'll decide then what will happen. I actually started the audition process, started making a tape, and you know, started getting it all happening. And then he, what's funny is that I, I started getting second thoughts. I was like, you know, I just really don't want to do this. I just want to go to New York now, and I just want to you know, play. And I... Told, I don't remember if I told J Mac, but I think I told some of my friends like, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna do it. And then J Mac called me in his office and he said, look, you know, I know, I know you're having second thoughts about doing this. You know, you really should do this. You should go. You should get a master's. You'll be able to study with all these people. You should do this. You know, now's the time for you to just do this stuff. So, you know, I trusted what J Mac said and it meant a lot to me. Everything he said meant a lot to me. So I just, I just did. It. I said, all right, I'm gonna do it. If I, I'm gonna audition, if I get in, then I'll just do it. And I audition and I and I got in and uh and that's that's what happened. And what happened as a result of going to the Mung Institute? What what things happened to you that helped your career move forward? Well, a lot of great things happened. I mean, <clears throat> the way the Mung Institute works is basically they just select a band and you get in there. So basically you're a band in a college, you know, with full access to everything, which is great. Um in addition to that, they bring guest artists up like every weekend or every I'm sorry, every week. So I was able to get private lessons and you know we were able to deal with these musicians in an ensemble environment you know with everyone you know Benny Golson, Phil Woods, Barry Harris, uh Ron Carter was basically one of the artistic you know directors and and the band kind of like a uh coach and every weekend Friday and Saturday we would have an intensive study with him for about about 5 hours every weekend of just Ron Carter just telling us what the deal is, you know. And then in addition to that, we would do tours with the group. And one one summer we did a tour and had Herbie Hancock uh, on piano. So in our ensemble was Herbie on piano with our ensemble, you know. And then our, our, our pianist, which was uh, Richard Johnson, you know, he would play a couple of tunes, a concert, and then Herbie would play the rest. So in addition to being able to study with all these great jazz musicians and meeting a lot of people in the business, um, I got to go on the road with Herbie Hancock for two for two weeks and and and, and learn about what all that was about. And it was really an incredible experience. In addition to that, once I finally ended up moving to New York City, one of the first things I did was call every, just about every single person that I met while I was in the Monk Institute and say, "Hey, I'm in New York City. Just letting you know I'm here. Give me some gigs, <laughs> you know." And uh, and uh, actually, Eric Reed, who whom came to the Monk Institute to, to uh, do some stuff with us was one of the uh, first people. Well, actually, the first the first person I ended up started working with, and, and I was in his band when I first got to New York City for the first uh, first two years or so. So that I mean, I'm sure if I would have just come here and not gone to the Monk Institute, something would have happened eventually, but not in the same way that it did. The, the Monk Institute was really a, a great a great thing for me to do. So now you're in New York. You're playing with Eric Reed. How long did your association with Eric's band last? Uh, approximately two years. Um, we did we did a, a CD a CD called Happiness. We did some tours. I also met Carl Allen through the Monk Institute and through playing with Eric Reed, and then I ended up working with him and, and different projects. So, um, and that spawned off to a lot of different things. I mean, uh, Eric Reed's uh, uh, CD Happiness that was on the Nagel Hire that is on the Nagel Hire label. Um, I did, and the Nagel Hire Frank Nagel Hire was um, you know Doug what I what I was doing, and I had a project that I was working on, and. 
I ended up getting signed to Nagel Hire Records, and my first two uh, CDs are on Nagel Hire. So. so you came to New York in 2000, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, by... think, I think it maybe the summer of 99, actually. Okay. And by 2001, you had your first record out, Times Change, which was, as you just said, on uh, Nagel Hire Records. Mm-hmm. And by that time, were you also playing with the Mingus Band? Yeah, I think I hooked up with the Mingus Band actually in about 2001, just when that first CD came out was uh, when I really started playing with the Mingus Band. Yeah. And how did that happen? I was good friends with Jonathan Blake and Jeremy Pelt, who both had been playing. Actually, Jonathan had been playing the Mingus Band for quite a while. Jeremy, a little less longer, but he was still playing the Mingus Band for a little while. And uh, they would always tell me, you know, come come down and sit in. So I would always just go and sit in. And, you know, Sue uh, Mingus seemed to be, uh, you know, pretty nice to me and, and thought I sounded okay. And uh, then I think one Thanksgiving, um, she called me. And it's funny because Thanksgiving is always the gig that it's hard to get people there. And we used to play at the Fez every Thursday, which was always Thanksgiving. So, you know, she would always have trouble finding musicians on Thanksgiving. It still does. Um, so she called me one Thanksgiving and said, uh, do you want to come and, and pl- you know, play the Mingus Band? I was like, hell yeah, you know. And the first time I played with the Mingus Band was like Jeff Tane Watts on drums. It was all subs, but it's funny. It was just all guys who didn't mind playing on Thanksgiving and might have just happened to be in town. It was like Jeff Tane Watts, uh, Dave Kikoski, and, you know, it's just all these bad dudes. You know, Vincent Herring, I was like, oh, man. Um, and that was my first uh, first time playing with the Mingus Band. And then after that, she gradually would call me every now and again if, if, if you know, Seamus Blake couldn't do it or whatever, and then over for the next year probably she, uh, I was doing it you know maybe once a month or something like that, and then uh, once once probably around 2000 came I was pretty much uh, a mainstay in the, in the group. Now it's it's 2001. You've got some some decent steady gigs. You've got your first record out. Is it pretty much a, a steady upward progression from there? Uh, you mean from from once the first record came out till yeah. now? I guess just kind of being able to get work, uh, playing with a lot of different people. Um. Yeah, well, one of, one of the good things about the Mingus Band is that you're playing with so many different musicians. It's like you're meeting so many different people all the time. So that's that's been great. And uh, like we mentioned, Sue has those three groups, and they're all they're all very busy. So that was keep, that's keeping me busy. Over time, I just have, have um, met different people. I mean, I, I met uh, I met Don Sickler in the Monk Institute and got reacquainted with him. And he has this uh, project that he's been dealing with for about I don't know, about two or three years now, um, the Ben Riley Monk Legacy Septet. Um, and he asked me to be a part of that, so I've been playing in that group. Um, and uh, most recently, um, for the past year, I've been playing with the Tom Harrell Quintet. I'm the, pretty much the newest member in his band. So yeah, I really uh, every year after that I've been working more and more, and I'm really uh, I'm, I'm blessed, I'm lucky, and I'm I'm really happy. Well, let's start uh, or finish up, I should say, by talking again about Veneration, which is the new album. And this album uh, relies less on your own composition than than previous records, although you do have uh, Tell Me Why on here, which which you wrote. Was that a, a conscious decision? Was it necessitated by the band needing to play things folks were familiar with? Or how did you come up with the material that you played at Smoke on this date? Well, the idea of the band really is to, uh, is to perform music of uh, a lot of the artists that we all have, have come up just loving and admiring. And I think a lot of those artists are respected um, and, and appreciated more for their, uh, for their great improvisations. Um, but they're great. They're also great writers, and you know people like Freddie Hubbard and Booker Little and Jackie McLean and John Coltrane have written some really great songs. So the idea of the band is to maybe play some of those songs that are lesser known and, and not done quite as much. 
um, just to maybe reacquaint people with them, or maybe maybe people will say, "Oh man, I never heard that song." Who wrote, and it happens to me all the time. People say, "Who wrote that song?" I'll be like, "Well, Kenny Dorham wrote that song." And they had no idea; they never even heard it, you know. And so the idea of the band is to play a lot of a lot of un, underexplored music of, of a lot of the masters of this music. So that's it, it is an, it is intentional that there aren't um, many originals. Um, in the next one we do, we'll probably throw in some more originals in there. But uh, the idea is definitely to, to to play some of that that kind of music. You just mentioned Booker Little, who uh, many people will know the trumpeter Booker Little from his association with the saxophonist, well, multi-instrumentalist Eric Dolphy. Mm-hmm. And you play uh, one tune on this record, uh, B-Vamp, which is on, I think, volume two of Live at the Five Spot. Right. And then you play another tune called Looking Ahead. Talk a little bit about Looking Ahead and how you uh, found that piece of music. <laughs> Is that the record? I think it's got, and it's one of the covers has a. It's like Booker Little and Friend with an asterisk, and next the asterisk is next to the trumpet on the front cover. I think it was like yeah. Victory and Victory something. and Sorrow. Victory and Sorrow. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You mentioned some other people who are really known as improvisers, um, but who are also good writers. Talk a little bit about I Waited for You. Uh, yeah, I Waited for You is by Dizzy Gillespie. It's co-written by someone else. I can't remember right now, but it's basically a Dizzy tune. And it's just a killing tune, man. It's, it, it has great lyrics, um, and it's a beautiful tune. And that's an, actually another tune, ironically, that uh, that uh, I heard George Coleman play with um, with Chet Baker on one of the, on one of those uh, one of those. You know, they, they did a series of, of CDs, and uh, that's actually how I first came across that tune. And I think I've heard heard Dizzy play it somewhere. But uh, I've always wanted to do that tune, and I kind of reworked it and, and, and rearranged it and changed some changed some of the chords around. And, uh, and and did that tune, and it's, uh, I love playing it. 
And you do it more up-tempo than it's traditionally done, right? Yeah, I do it more up-tempo, and it's like a straight, straight, uh, straight kind of thing, and I change some of the harmonies. you do another tune that uh, almost any jazz fan is going to be familiar with and that's uh, Billy Strayhorn and uh, Ellington Isfahan uh, and this has an interesting arrangement to it talk a little bit about that well actually it's funny because I just uh, I thought it would be nice uh, as a breath of fresh air to kind of just do it duo just because the vibes you know with the vibes and the drums we had a really intense sound that whole gig we were really into it we were really getting excited and I thought it might be nice to just kind of strip everything down and just you know feel bare for a minute and just play a nice tune and and uh and feature Hans Levisionic on bass and he's a, he's one of my favorite bass players I love playing with him so I wanted to do that and then what's funny is uh is not until after the recording was was uh almost done and I, and, and I decided to put the song on there I was like oh, you know what Joe Henderson did this same thing, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it's funny. I just totally, I mean, I've listened to, to Joe Henderson uh, play Strayhorn. That, that record is one, one of my favorite records forever. I mean, I love that record. And what's funny is that I haven't listened to it so long. It's clearly in the back of my head somewhere, and I just didn't even realize that I was thinking of it. When I, when I ended up, you know, I'm thinking I have some sort of original idea. I'm like, oh, let's do a duo. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just funny that, um, you know, all that stuff really stays with you. Everything comes from somewhere. Now there is. Uh, we did mention there is a tune that you wrote on this record, which is called "Tell Me Why," and I know it has a, a story or more than one story behind it. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I just I just wrote that song. Uh, uh, one day I was thinking about um, my mom was. Uh, she actually was living in uh, in England at the time. She was going through some stuff, and then and then uh, my wife Carolyn Lenhart was uh, was going through some things, and basically they were just both both having a hard time and a little upset about some stuff that was going on. So I was kind of. Uh, 
in a pensive kind of mood and I was playing the, uh, the roads kind of thinking about both of them and I ended up writing this song. mentioned your wife carolyn lenhart who uh, is a, a wonderful wonderful singer people should definitely check out if they haven't yet my, my guess is maybe she's drinking a cup of tea now just based on the, uh, <laughs> the ambient noises <laughs> yeah on. yeah exactly that's she's one of the always, cool things she's always drinking tea <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh how did you meet carolyn uh i actually met her at smoke all full circle <laughs> i met her on valentine's day at smoke after coming from a mingus gig that happened to me on valentine's day you gotta be kidding does that really happen that's exactly how it happened it was valentine's day on, uh, on february 14th and i was like uh oh, no girls here let me go up to smoke <laughs> so i went up to smoke i was hanging out and then i saw carolyn we started talking and that was the first time we met and then uh you know that it, it led uh it led to uh where we are now <laughs> And one of my uh, recent guests, uh, pianist Toru Dodo, plays in a band with you and your wife, Carolyn, right? Yeah, actually, we have a project together. Um, well, actually, I'm, I play saxophone and also I'm the musical director for in Carolyn's group for the most part. I write a lot of the arrangements and uh, play saxophone there. But also, we, we've kind of like changed the way the way we're, we're uh, doing that, and we kind of have a collaborative group together. And uh, and Toru's, Toru's in that. And uh, we actually just recorded a CD for Nagel Hire, and uh, that's probably going to come out sometime this summer. What else is coming up for you in the near future? Uh, well, hopefully more projects with, with, with Carolyn and this group once that CD comes out. Um, I really want to focus on these two groups, that, you know, the, 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 most, the immediate one being Veneration with, uh, with Joe Locke and Hans and, and Louis Nash. I really want to try to work a lot with this band. I think we just actually completed a weekend at Smoke uh, just yesterday. Uh, we did Friday and Saturday, and it was packed house every set. Um, and, and really, the audience really loves the group, and it just it just made me f- feel really good. I mean, and it's not that they just came to hear me or, or just to hear Joe or just to hear one person in particular. They just came to hear the group, and everyone everyone that heard the group loved it and just loves the sound. So we really want to try to do some more gigs with this group. Um, in addition to that, I'm really I'm really excited that. Uh, that I'm that I'm a member of uh, Tom Harrell's group and and we hope that he's he actually we just did a uh, recording for High Note he just signed to High Note Records <clears throat> and that recording should be coming out in a few months and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more work with him um, and, you know I'm just lucky man I'm mean, I'm playing with all these different I'm playing with Ben Riley I'm playing with Tom Harrell I'm you know Mingus is doing so many the Mingus band is doing so many great things and then I have this thing with Carolyn I just hope that all of the bands are just working a lot and we get to uh, to travel all over the world and just keep playing this music because uh, I'm actually fortunate enough that right now I'm a part of a lot of great musical uh, uh, environments, and I just, I just hope people get to hear them and we get to uh, experiment more and more. 
Well, that's an inspiring way to end. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Wayne. And again, I thank you uh, for doing this and uh, wish you all the best with the amazing number of bands you're currently playing in. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. That's Skydive from saxophonist Wayne Escoffrey's new album Veneration on Savant Records. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com where you'll find interviews, jazz news, and a whole lot more. You'll also find links to subscribe to this show. If you can, please subscribe via iTunes. It's free, and it just means that you'll always have the most recent episode of the show waiting for you whenever you want it. I also write interviews and reviews for AllAboutJazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, send an email to Jason at TheJazzSession.com or call 585-473-5304. You can also join the mailing list, which you'll find at TheJazzSession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world. The theme music for the show is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks again for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. P.S. Jeff Rabel, I just mentioned your name.